0: Welcome to Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. I'm your host, Lily Rowe, the community outreach archivist at Emory University Library's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library in Atlanta, Georgia. In this first season of Behind the Archives, we explore from many perspectives the question, what is an archive? Journey with me to learn from the insights of our guests and explore what we do at Rose Library. In this episode, I talk with Katherine Fisher, Head of Digital Archives for Rose Library. Welcome to the podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Hey, thank you so much for inviting me, me to be part of the podcast. I'm really happy to be here and talking to you today. I am Catherine Fisher. I'm the new head of digital archives at the Rose Library. I just started working here last October, October of 2020. and But all of that has happened during the pandemic. So it's been a little bit of a strange start and that those four months sometimes feel like much less and sometimes like much longer.
0: I believe we're in a time loop, you know, I think so. So um, you're at the Rose, you're starting out. Where did you, uh, what was your previous position?
1: So before I came to Emory, I was working for Georgia State University, just a few miles down the road, and I was a digital preservation archivist there for three years.
0: Okay. So I was going to ask you, like, what are the similarities and the differences between the two jobs?
1: One big difference is that in my previous position, I also had some curatorial responsibilities over one of our collecting areas. So I was doing a lot of work with donors and outreach and collection building, but my primary responsibility was digital preservation. And in that context, I was responsible for of helping to bring in and process and care for all of our born digital collections. So that is still part of my job now at the Rose, uh, but instead of those curatorial responsibilities that I had before, I've kind of swapped those out for a role where I'm more broadly overseeing our digital archives program. So that does include some of those born digital activities that I was doing in my previous position, but I'm also helping to plan and strategize for kind of our online collections and our digitization program and liaising with the other parts of Emory's libraries who help with that work as well on behalf of the Rose.
0: So could you tell me about digital archives?
1: That's a good question. So uh, I'm going to back up just a little bit and kind of talk, try to define broadly what we're talking about when we say digital archives. Um, In a really general sense, digital archives are basically just the electronic counterparts of the paper records and manuscripts, photographic prints and negatives, and all of the other analog formats that archives have always collected. In digital archives, we're dealing with lots of the same types of content and significance. You know, it's similar to these older materials in terms of what's in it and why we want to collect it. But because digital content is made differently, we have to use different techniques to work with it. Um, And so there are two really kind of broad categories of activities that we are often referring to when we think about digital archives. One of those is born digital, and one of those is digitized. So what I think people tend to think of first when they hear digital archives is digitization. So taking historical or cultural materials on paper or in books or on videotapes and scanning or converting that stuff into digital files. And that's... Really exciting because it helps us to preserve fragile older formats and it also helps us to put a lot more material online where we can share it more easily with students and the community. But that's just one part of digital archives. So the other part, which is actually the bigger part of my job in terms of what I spend time doing really hands on, and that's working with born digital collections, managing and preserving. Things that were originally created in an electronic form. They weren't digitized from paper or some other material. They've always been digital. So, if you think about it, every kind of document or record that has historically been common in the archives now has a digital equivalent. Um, what used to be kept on, like financial information that used to be kept in ledgers, we now have in spreadsheets. When people, where people used to write, letters for their correspondence, we now use email. So all of this information that we're creating every day on our phones or our computers, it is kind of the contemporary counterpart to these other formats that came before. Technology changes so fast. I think we've probably all had the experience of upgrading a device and realizing that some of our files didn't transfer to the new phone or the new computer or, you know, finding an old disk and not being able to read it anymore Um, just our software and our hardware environments change so quickly that it's really easy to to lose the ability to read media or open files and so born digital archiving is the work of gathering and taking care of that digital content and making sure that files can still be accessed and used far into the future through all of these kinds of technological changes.
0: Okay, so I just had a thought, just stay with me here. What you just described will now make me think of all digital archivists as Indiana Jones.
1: <laughs>
0: because you all are basically trying to interpret um, languages that aren't spoken anymore I mean,
1: I think y'all should go with that.
0: I'm just saying. I'm not, I'm just saying. I'm just going to put that out there. Indiana Jones.
1: I, I could go with that. I, I mean, like I, that. Ca- I, I mean,
0: right? Like, you can think about it as, Um, you're, you're right. Like, um, when we teach even, like, K through 5 or you've seen, like, internet videos of people trying to access different things that I know I grew up with and And, like, I actually I think when I in one of the multiple moves I've done in the last few years, I found my high school floppy disk. I have no idea what was on it, and cannot access it.
1: <laughs> Bring it on into the lab, and we can take a look.
0: I think I use it as a coaster, unfortunately, somewhere, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think i will I'll work on emulating Indiana Jones more. Maybe I'll get a hat. I'll wear the hat while I'm working on hard drives. Uh, there actually it's interesting that you brought that up because some of the methods that we use in the born digital archives world are are sometimes referred to as digital archaeology. So, you know, taking an old hard drive and using specific kinds of software tools to kind of look inside and see what we find and try to interpret it and make the the bits readable as something meaningful again. Mm
0: -hmm. And so when you're doing that, um, are you working from pre restart Because it's not like technology, uh, you know, unlike uh, hieroglyphics where it was like lost for a few years and then it was rediscovered or or we found a way to read again those uh, pictographs. I think I'm saying it right. Um, When you're using it, right? So, Let's say, like, does it give you an advantage if you have used the software before? Because, I mean, I'm I'm assuming in 20 years when someone um, who hasn't ever used a floppy disk will now have to use it. Like, how does that translate into like, OK, how do we pass this information on? Or are you like, are we keeping the, the floppy disk and we're getting or are we. Extracting the, the the bits from it, the information, and then the floppy disk, which itself is now an archive uh, item, right?
1: Uh, depends on the collection and different institutions handle this differently. But almost always our first priority when working with any kind of physical digital media is going to be to make a copy of the content that is separate from that physical carrier. Because... You know, as you, floppy disks are a good example, it's harder and harder to find a drive that you can put them into these days, and the media itself is prone to kind of degrading or being damaged over time. So even if you were to find a drive, you might not be able to to actually access the files that are on it. So our very first step in most cases is going to be try to make a copy of the files or of the bits. So we'll create what's called a disk image, which is uh, using a, a special program that actually makes an exact copy bit by bit of every sector of that disk, and then we have basically a virtual copy of that disk that we could mount on a computer as if we're, you know, inserting the disk, but it doesn't rely on that physical media anymore. So that's one way to do it. And we always try to start there, create create a disk image or otherwise transfer the files so that we're no longer depending on that physical item. We're reducing the number of factors that could um, get in the way of accessing the content, um, kind of reducing dependencies or possible points of failure. Uh, we do often, we, we typically also keep that original disk because There's a chance that at some point in the future our technology might be better. We might want to go back and look at it again. And also the physical item can sometimes have artifactual value or other kinds of historical value by itself. It can be an interesting object in its own right. Or maybe it's labeled in a certain way by the creator of the collection and we want to be able to keep a record of how they used and labeled it or what they wrote on it. Like, you know,
0: you're using it as how the author of that item would use it. And I'm thinking about some of the items that uh, we have in the Rose Collection, which you may or may not have been able to access. But when I am saving a document... And I am I am not a, a poet or anyone like that, but in some of the archives that we have, writers information, as as we're getting those archives and we have that um those dates and, and information like that, when someone looks at that information, how are we how are they going to access that? Like how do we, um in the future with archives like know that you know this person, this um, poet or author, um, actually looked at their email at this time. Like, will we we'll be able to give that experience to users to kind of flip through? Like, if you if it was the physical thing, they could flip through the file to see. Oh, okay. Let's this was accessed this, but what emails are is like there are several emails. How do they access that without? changing the order of the emails?
1: Yeah, so there are a few different approaches that we take within the Rose and that are common within digital archives generally. And it, the approach kind of depends on the nature of the collection and how we think it might be used and also the resources we have. So the Rose Library has a pretty famous emulation of Salman Rushdie's computer and email, and emulation is basically creating, recreating what the original environment or the original context for these digital files might have looked like. So when Rushdie placed his computer in our collections here, our staff, I was not here at the time, but our staff took that computer and basically rebuilt On a different device, a computing environment that would look and feel very similar to his original one. So people could sit in front of that computer in our reading room and click through his emails or click through his files. And it wouldn't be exactly what he saw because it wasn't literally on the same device. And some items might have been redacted or removed, but it would resemble what he had done. So emulation is essentially... Um, using using software to mimic an older or a different kind of operating system or software program. And it can be really useful for us from a preservation standpoint, and it can be really useful for researchers so that they can experience those things in something closer to what was originally intended or the original context in which the digital files were created. But it's not perfect. I think it's important to remember that just like paper materials, the work that archivists do, the intervention that gets those things ready for people to use always does have an effect on what you end up seeing. Um, We can never perfectly represent or recreate or communicate the original context or intent of the creator without without the decisions we make along the way influencing what we are showing people to some degree. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. And as archivists, digital or any other kind, it's important for us to to be as transparent as we can about those decisions that we make and to document those so that people who are using the collection have some sense of where archivist decisions are coming in and how they're affecting what they see. So uh, to go back to born digital access, uh, those kinds of decisions do affect things, even when we're talking about emulation, which is a more authentic way of interacting with the materials, arguably, than some other options. But it's not something we do very often, partly because it can be very, very time-consuming and resource-intensive. And while it's cool... It's really, really cool, and researchers often enjoy that. Um, Most of the time, we find that researchers' needs can be met in simpler ways. So I think it's a great – I think emulation as an access method is still coming into its own. There's lots of research and development being done in the digital archives world that will make it easier and less expensive and – open up new possibilities. And I think that's really exciting. And there's a good chance that we will be able to do more with it in the future. But for now, we do often use a lot of simpler methods. So for a lot of our born digital collections, what we do after we copy the content off of the physical media, off of the hard drives or the floppy disks or um, the network drives or email accounts, wherever it is, we're getting the stuff. After we've copied that and we've created preservation copies that are exact copies of what we got originally, we'll process those files, and this is similar to the way that we process other collections. We look at them, we think about how to organize them in a way that is going to both reflect their original use and the creator's original intent, but also help researchers to make sense of them. And then we will often convert those files into more standardized file formats like PDFs. So we might take a batch of emails or a batch of WordPerfect documents and we'll turn them into PDF files, organize them into a folder on a reading room computer and let people look at them that way. And the downside of that is that we lose some of the functionality of those original files. It's not the same as looking at them in their original formats or their original environment. And so that that is a downside. That's a loss. But it also does give us a way to make stuff available to researchers with fewer barriers in a sense. Our researchers don't have to learn specialized tools or unique interfaces or get back in the mode of an older operating system or something like that. It's it's easy for them to use in that way and it's easy for us to maintain. And there is always the possibility that if somebody wants more, if they want to see something in its original format, that's a conversation we could have. We could kind of negotiate that. Like if they if there's something that's important about a particular file or a collection that can't be communicated in the access copies that we've made available to them, maybe we can go back to the originals and try to come up with another way of presenting it.
0: And so now that you've like talked about archives more in the digital sense, what would I have to do to become a digital archivist? Like what path did you take?
1: That's a good question. My path was not very direct. I sometimes think that I landed in digital archives of by accident, but I really love it. I'm glad it's where I ended up. Um, I was an English major as an undergraduate, so I spent a lot of time with analog materials, reading lots of paper books and in the archives with paper manuscripts. And I knew that I wanted to continue working with working with literature, teaching, doing research and writing. And so I went to graduate school in English literature and I got a PhD in that. But along the way, while I was studying in that program, I realized that my favorite experiences, the times when I felt most engaged in what I was doing and the best able to put my skills and interests to work, were the times when I was working in archives, working with historical materials, and when I was consulting one-on-one with students on their research and their writing. And so instead of teaching in in higher ed like I had originally planned, I decided to look for a career in libraries or archives. So we still haven't gotten to the digital part. That's just how I ended up in archives generally. Um, After I finished my PhD, I knew that I probably needed to go to library school to get the skills and the experiences that I needed to find the sort of job that I wanted to have. Uh, But before I did that, I worked for a few years in publishing. I worked at three different university presses doing book and journal publishing. And eventually, around the same time that I started library school, I ended up in a job that was focused on digital publishing projects. So I was working with digital asset management and metadata, digitization, open access resources, all of these things that started moving me in the direction of digital archives. And so that experience ended up pairing really well with my MLIS, my library science master's coursework, and with some internship experience and with other things I had done in the past as a teacher and as a researcher and all of that kind of coalesced around digital archives as sort of the area that brought together all of those things that I was interested in. So that was how I ended up in this field. I got a job at Georgia State University, just nearby, as a digital preservation archivist. And I worked there for about three years before coming to Emory. Wow. And here I am.
0: Here you are, which we're very glad that you're here. Um, I I don't think um, as I'm doing the podcast, it's always funny. I thought I had like a a trajectory that was different, but apparently I have the perfect trajectory to work in archives. Never take the direct path like veer, do a little something here and then go for this way. But but it always like something draws you to archives and it draws you into uh, positions that, you know, you just love and enjoy. I mean, um
1: <laughs> it seems very common to have kind of a roundabout path, but so many of us, I think, have ended up in roles that kind of perfectly bring together all of these different elements of our journeys to where we are, and I think that's fun to see how it all comes together and informs the work that each of us does now in different parts of the archives
0: and so um, what would you what advice would you give to an inspiring archivist
1: so Generally speaking, I would say try to spend time in archives or with archives in whatever way you can. If you if you're lucky enough to find a job as a a student assistant uh, as an undergraduate or graduate student in archives, that's great. Even if that's not an option for you, there might be other ways that you can spend time with archives. There are so many archives that have really robust, interesting online collections that you can spend time looking at. Um, The South Asian American Digital Archive is a really cool project that's fully online and that people from all over the place contribute to in different ways. Um, So look for ways that you can kind of follow those projects or spend time looking at those materials or contribute. um, And that will help you to learn about how archives work, learn about some of the terminology and the goals and the problems that we have in the profession and how people are trying to rectify those. Um, So that would be my first piece of advice. I think from a practical standpoint, I would also recommend trying to learn about areas of archives that are growing and in demand and think about how you can align your skills with those. Digital archives is an area where there's increasing need for people with digital skills Um, more and more I see job postings that involve digital archiving to some extent Um, outreach and instruction are also really desirable skill sets in archives so if you have experience with teaching or social media or event planning those kinds of things so you know look at job postings talk to people who work in archives and find out what are the kinds of positions and skill sets that are that we're in need of right now. Mm-hmm.
0: And so that brings me to my next question. What's a common misconception about your job as an archivist?
1: I think more than a misconception, uh, what I run into is just people not knowing what an archivist is. They may have never heard of that before. And so sometimes I find if I'm just having a quick exchange with someone like at the dentist's office, I'll say I'm an archivist and they will look at me completely baffled and I will just say, I work in a library. And they say, oh, okay, great, I get it. <laughs> yeah. um, when I'm in a situation where I actually have a little time to talk to people more and explain a bit about what I do, um, people tend to, they get it and they're interested, but they still I think, often think that Maybe I get to spend all of my time leisurely reading old books and documents and kind of basking in the, you know, the magic of historical treasures. Uh, So that's I think something that a lot of us probably encounter. Um, (laughs) They think
0: we're dragging dragons, like we're just like hoarding all hoarding (laughs) our treasures. No, the thing is,
1: we want you to come and see the archives. I know archives can be they have a very well-deserved reputation for being kind of elitist and gatekeeper-y and intimidating. And I think there are a lot of things that we do that contribute to that, that we could be better about. But I really do think every archivist that I know now um, in 2021 really wants to move away from this kind of past image of archives and the idea that we are, you know, dragons, Hoarding treasures, and we don't want anyone else to touch them, like we we collect and we take care of archives because we want them to be here for people now and in the future. and uh, we we love to hear from people what is exciting to them about the collections, what else they think should be represented in our collections that's not. Um, we want people to come in and ask questions and look at stuff and bring our collections to life.
0: Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I just had an image of Lord of the Rings and uh, my precious, my precious, you know, (laughs) like, just that idea. Um, And so when, when, and that's the other thing too, I think is we we would love to have a lot of items um, considered digital, but the span of items we have can you talk a little about that? Like the, some of the things that I um that I get questions about is oh well um is it digital? Can I can I just, you know, see it and it's like, "Ooh." Well. <laughs> Let's talk about that.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. So this actually reminds me of another misconception that I do sometimes encounter specifically about digital archives, which is that digital archives or digital preservation is basically just all about scanning things and putting them online um, and that, you know, end of story and that's all there is to it, which is understandable, but um, is a just a small piece. And there are a lot of reasons that we might have digital stuff but can't just put it online. Um, of course, we're always trying to make stuff more available, you know, in To more people with fewer barriers, that's that's always a goal that we have. Um, But in many cases, that's easier said than done. And so in a digital context, uh, just a few of the reasons that something might not be online, even though it's digital, could be, one, maybe it's in a format that isn't in use anymore or can't be displayed in a browser um, that So it would require a lot of, we'd have to do some development or convert that file somehow or do something to it that would allow us to actually put it on a website and let someone see it in an easy way. It's just, there might be technological challenges there. Um, another big reason is that digital archives often contain really sensitive material. Um, and this is true for our kind of traditional analog paper collections too. Usually when, especially when we have someone's personal papers, it's very likely that there will be content in that collection that we wouldn't want to just be publicizing, distributing for anyone to easily find just to protect the privacy and respect the preferences of our donors. And we do try to do that. And so we might have stuff that's digital, but because it has you know, really personal information in it or because it might have sensitive or legally protected content like health or financial or student records in it, we might not be able to put it online. We might be able to still allow people to use it in a more limited, more mediated way, but we can't just put it on the open web without – going through a really extensive review process and being careful what we put up there that would be kind of searchable and visible to everyone. Um, Another issue is copyright. And that is also true of our non-digital stuff. But again, just because something is already digital doesn't necessarily mean that we have permission to put it online. We might be able to keep a copy of it in our own systems and let a researcher use it on site, but if we don't own the copyright to it and the person who does own the copyright hasn't given us permission, then we might not be able to disseminate it more widely.
0: And so I have one last question, maybe more follow-up, but um, why are archives
1: important? One reason that I think about a lot is accountability or evidence, um, having records of decisions that have been made, actions that have been taken in the past by institutions or by governments can be incredibly important. It's a powerful way to um, to protect and advance people's rights. Uh, so that's, that's really important. I also think that archives, when they are Collected and stewarded in a thoughtful and responsible way can help to balance the historical record. You know, we know that the people who are in power at any given time, historically, that's primarily been wealthy white men, are the people who have tended to be the ones whose stories are best known, who shape the dominant narratives in popular media and in historical writing. And archives can be a way to preserve and tell other stories that might have been captured in less formal or less high-profile ways. And archives can also help us to, I think, expand and enrich our perspectives of historical events or movements because they tend to feature firsthand accounts and other primary documents that give us personal perspectives or details that don't make it into the, uh, you know, the, yeah, exactly, the big picture official written accounts. And, which is not to say that archives always do this well, or that archives haven't, in many cases, um, reinforced and benefited from these same kinds of power dynamics and inequities of our society at large Um, I just think though that archives have the potential to to help us tell other stories if we we make sure that those stories are collected and that we are partnering with, um, with the people whose stories need to be told Um, So that's part of it for me. And I I do think, especially in a digital world, in digital archives, there's so much potential here when we're thinking about collecting new formats, web archiving, social media archiving. That's an incredibly powerful way to document um, activism and to think about shifting authority and power in our collecting and in our narratives to, you know, away from traditional structures of power and out toward the wider community.
0: Behind the Archives is produced by Lily Rowe and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library. Jennifer King, Director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Katherine Fisher and to the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. Please join us next month when I'll be interviewing Rose Library's rare book librarian, Beth Shoemaker. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Community Conversations and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us online at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on Rose Library's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can find Behind the Archives and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.